Welcome to the Autobahn Country Club Podcast, where your host, club member John Graybeal, opens the doors to America's premier auto sports club. Now, here's John. Welcome, podcast listeners. I just landed in Raleigh-Durham, sitting in the hotel here, getting ready for this week's podcast. What an incredible week at the club. The Audubon Country Club was full of activity. June 1st was my son's 15th birthday. All he wanted for his birthday was to be the first person out on the track, the brand new car track. And he was, along with his teammate Spencer McFarlane, was right behind him as they were the first ones to take the first official laps around the cart track, followed by a great day. I was able to get all four of our family carts on the track, all practicing that day in preparation for the first race, Sunday, June 2nd. What else was going on Saturday was a 32-car Miata race, 22 laps. Winning the Miata race was Taro Koshida, and he won the Spec Miata race the portion, and Sean Benet won the SM2 class. Moving on to Sunday, the first kart league race on Sunday. An incredible, incredible event. I cannot say enough fantastic things about the entire staff. Of course, we all know the staff that's been there for such a long time, doing a great job. Kyle Nato running the running the race. Mario in the mechanics area, along with Brett, keeping everybody on the, on the track. It was great. Also need to put a big shout-out to Alan, the new general manager, and also his assistant down there, Brett. First day we met Brett was Saturday. He is way into kart racing. He's fantastic. What a great addition. Alan also was on the podcast last week. So if you missed Alan's podcast, finding all about him and all about his background, please go back and listen to the podcast last week. It was great sitting down with him and visiting with him. What a wealth of knowledge that have that has he has brought to the club, the kart race. Wow, what a great day. 40 carts. All four of my family was able to race. It was so much fun. It's tough when mom and dad are racing and we got two kids racing in the divisions that go right after each other, but we somehow were able to pull it off. My wife did an incredible job keeping my daughter, getting my daughter ready out on the racetrack for her second race. I was busy trying to get my son out there, and then we also got ourselves out there for the open race, the chase race. Winners in the kart race starting at Kid Kart Honda was Peanut Price. Fantastic job out there. In the rookie division was super fast Samuel Bowman. If you haven't seen him on the kart track, he is so fast. He's an incredible racer. Winning the junior division, Mitchell Grabiel. I guess that was a birthday present for him also on a day after his birthday. Winning the senior division was Jordan Missig. Story about him in a second. Winning the senior heavy division was Kevin Davis. So Jordan also that afternoon, yesterday, Sunday, had a radical race. The second that he finished the final uh, the final for the cart race, literally jumped out of his cart, ran with two minutes to spare, got to the 12-minute qualifying session, was able to get in his radical, qualify for the pole position, and then went on to win it. So Jordan won two races that day. Incredible job, Jordan and his family, getting him from one place to another. Uh, it, it was just it was great. The cart race, I cannot say about the atmosphere for the cart race. It was great to see all of our friends that we had missed over the summer. The atmosphere, the camaraderie, the helping, the competition, everything was just absolutely incredible, just as we left off last year and building on it this year. Great job, guys. So much fun. Now, quickly, right on to our podcast Hong Zhang is the educational director for the Schnell Foundation. We have all have to have Schnell helmets in our cars. Producer Mark McFarlane. Oh, yeah. I do need to mention one winner at the car track. That was the open division. And that winner, first podium, first time he was up there, and the winner, Mark McFarlane, my buddy, my training partner, what a great job out there. Uh, I was nipping at his heels, but he got across the finish line first. It was just a great day. So happy for him. He deserved a great win, and that was wonderful to start off the season. Mark 
the producer, always asking me, what's about this helmet? What about this helmet? What about this helmet? What's the difference? So he told me, go out and find out. Let's get somebody on that knows everything about helmets. That's the Snell Foundation. They're the ones that certify all the helmets. That's what we use at the track. So what, what do you do if you drop a helmet? What's the difference between a karting helmet and a car helmet? All those questions are going to be answered right here on the Audubon Country Club podcast. So let's welcome Hong Zhang as she teaches us and tells us all about helmets. Hello? Good morning. It's John Graybill from the Audubon Country Club podcast. Oh, I appreciate this opportunity. Can you say your first and last name for me so I pronounce it perfectly? My first name is Hong, H-O-N-G, like Hong Kong. And last name is Zhang, Z-H-A-N-G, Zhang. Okay. Um, where, where, did you, uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in China. Oh, okay. Um, I finished my college in China, actually, and then uh, I came to the United States. I went to uh, uh, get my uh, master's in the uh, University of Rochester. Oh, okay. All right. What state? Yeah. Where, where in China did you grow up? South, uh, the capital city of Jiangxi province, uh, which is, uh, I would say, about four hours uh, southwest, pretty much south, a little bit to the west, southwest of uh, Shanghai. So it's between, right in the middle between Shanghai and Hong Kong. Uh, is that a, uh, forgive me, is that a, is that a farming area? Is that a rural area or is it a uh, urban area? No, it's a, no, it's an urban area. It's the capital city of Jiangxi province. The city is called Nanchang. Okay. Um, <clears throat> what's the, what, what's the, uh, big industry there or is there, is there a certain industry that's... Well, at, at the time when I grew up, it, actually, you know, China's so, uh, popu- uh, the population is so large, it's always been that way. So when I was there, the city was almost a million people. Uh, during that time, there was the uh, aviation industry there. Uh, actually, one or uh, this uh, factory that made all the uh, pilot training planes uh, since the fifties on. And did mm-hmm. you did you grow up? Uh, obviously, your English is fantastic. That wasn't your first language. What what all did you grow up speaking over there? Just Mandarin, or was there local? Uh, other, other yes, uh, Mandarin is the, the language that the school uses, and there is a dialect locally, the Nanchang dialect, that, that you know everybody uh, speaks as well. And um, it's interesting, as in southern China, almost uh, like if you travel somewhere like uh, more than a hundred miles. You know, you even don't have to go that far, about 60 miles outside an area. Everybody started to speak a slightly different language, uh, dialect. So, for like when I go back today to the city of Nanchang, I can just automatically turn back to my dialect. Nobody would know I have been away for 32 years. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then if you travel further out, like more than a hundred miles away, then people would know you're not local, and y- your dialect is just different. And if you travel further out, like um, the next door province, which is Canton, they speak Cantonese, and that's where um, a lot of the oldest the Chinese immigrants are uh, from. Their language, I couldn't understand, uh, I wouldn't, I would say I would probably understand only about 10% if they keep talking. Oh, really? Wow. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's not like uh, the southern Tuan here, you know, that you can still understand pretty much everything, you know. (laughs) Wow, I'm, I'm, uh, that's one of my other interests is, is, is languages and uh, how people come to learn other languages and embrace other languages. Did you, 
did you learn English growing up uh, early on? Or? Yes, yes. Um, uh, as normal, um, my parents didn't speak uh, English. They could read a little bit. They their generation studied the Russian, you know, because uh, oh. China was the ally of uh, the Soviet Union, and. Um, I was kind of lucky um, because of somebody else's uh, misfortune. My uh, my English teacher was actually uh, a graduate from St. John's uh, University of Shanghai. Mister um, Ye was supposed to go to the Divinity School in Harvard, and of course he missed the boat when the communists took over. So he spoke perfect English because it was a um, Catholic school. And he grew up uh, going to these um, um, uh, religion, uh, I mean, church-supported uh, schools in the Shanghai area. So his English was fantastic, but because of his background like that, uh, you know, he politically, he was... Um, I would say persecuted in some way, so he couldn't find other jobs, and he ended up just uh, uh, in uh, in the area. Um, by the time the com- uh, the Cultural Revolution uh, started, I don't know if you're familiar with Chinese history. A little bit, yes. Yes, starting 1966, basically the whole country fall apart. The Red Guards and, you know, the whole thing was dismantled. I mean, the hot, uh, university and a lot of institutions were dismantled. So my parents, who were doctors, uh, their hospital was dismantled. And we all got like 24 hours to move out of a area to serve the people, which is uh, assigned to some villages. So after a few years like that, you know, I I was in elementary school. My parents eventually put me back in grandparents' house so so we can stay in the city schools. And eventually they came back, you know, the city security doctors, they moved them back, but the houses and the buildings were occupied by some other outfit. So they had to reorganize the hospital on the outskirts of the city, like really uh, at the edge, basically, where the vegetable farmers and some factories were uh-huh. located and rebuilt the hospital. So I went to middle school there, and the, usually the curriculum uh, starts to teach foreign language um, uh, starting from uh, middle school. So that was not a good school, but that's where my parents end up um, being, you know, coming back to the city again. And that's where Mr. Ye ended up uh, teaching there. Cause he was sidelined, <laughs> even though his English was so fantastic. He, he wasn't put into the best of schools in the city. Huh. So I ended up having very good uh, teacher to start English, and I really loved the way, maybe I loved him, the way who he was. He was so kind and gentle, very polite, and uh, just the way he sounds so good, I just really fascinated by the language from the very beginning. Even though what we learn, you know, like the first the sentence is long live Chairman Mao, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I that know. is funny. That's your first uh, sentence in I English. Know, but, yeah. but it kind of built a, a lot of interest into me because the language just sounds so great to me. And my parents, all, of course, supported uh, very strongly. And so I, I think by the time I went to high school, it, I was so far ahead of the class, and uh, even like when we had high school reunion, some of the students say, oh, all I remember is when is English class, nobody else raised their hand, is always hung. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Did it, were there other, other languages that... Um that they, that when you... I was in college, uh, yeah, I loved the English so much. 
So I spend a lot of time studying uh, English on my own. When uh, the college, when I graduated from high school, was the first year that uh, the high school graduates were allowed to attend college after an exam. So um, everything started to open up, and boy, I read every uh, English book there was. <laughs> wow. And I got very upset about the translation. I thought the translation was poor, and I started like, working with a couple other students. Let's review this novel. It's, this was very bad. <laughs> Actually, it was not that bad. It was just, you know, uh, maybe we were not that good. <laughs> <laughs> but wow. anyway, the interest that was there. And um, so uh, we also had a choice to study Japanese, which uh, is very much like Chinese. So I, I took a second foreign language as well. But I think I forgot most of my Japanese since uh, that was so long ago. But Wow. Yeah, that's... Yeah, I, I, you know, when I grew up, it was difficult to learn a, a foreign language efficiently, I think. Um, you know, I'm trying to break that with my kids, trying to get them to, you know, a more efficient ways than... Then I learned it in the 1970s, but I still see language taught in schools the exact same way in 1970. We all know cars and helmets are not the same as they were in 1970. You know, my complaint is why are we still teaching kids the same we taught taught them in 1970? <laughs> That's another yeah. podcast, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. um, so how how did um, so you you went to school there in 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 Rochester? Did how, how did you get involved with the uh, the foundation? I was in a PhD program. Uh, by the time I was graduating, China, you know, Tiananmen Square instant happened. So this is the late, late night, late 80s, excuse me, late 80s, right? Yes. Yeah. 89. And um, that was, um, I wasn't graduating then, but um, by the time I graduate, uh, planned to graduate a couple of years later, it's 80, uh, 91, um, I realized I should not go back to China as I was um, uh, writing my dissertation. And my husband, I got married then, uh, he was in, uh, on Long Island, uh, Stony Brook University, he's a scientist. So I moved to Long Island to write my dissertation. And of course, he was a PhD student, and uh, Long Island was very expensive. So I was looking for a part-time job to help pay the rent while I was working on my uh, thesis. And that's how I stumbled into uh, the foundation. Um, it had a lab and office in uh, Long Island. So I was just doing some clerical work there in the beginning. And then uh, as I was graduating, um, I realized I really uh, enjoyed working with those wonderful people and what they do, uh, I believe, was so uh, well uh, worthy of uh, effort. Because um, my parents always kind of are not so happy about me not getting into medicine, and I thought they this is saving more people's lives than they could <laughs> in the hospital. Oh yeah. So um, yeah, so I um, gradually I just basically moved in, into this uh, uh, company to uh, do what I uh, enjoy doing and what needs to to get done, and uh, my. Uh, study, my area is uh, education. So I thought um, I would be good in uh, designing and uh, and uh, communicating the foundation's mission and its uh, knowledge and expertise with uh, the public and the media and anybody who is interested in head injury prevention. Wow. wow. So that's kind of how we got started. I really 
got started by accident, and、um, the people there are just fantastic people to work with. The mission is so clear and simple. I just felt like I fit in, and I've been there for so long. It's like my second family. Just ju- jumping back real quick, what what kind of、uh, doctors were your were your parents? Oh, my parents, my、uh, they're dematologists. So is there been retired? Are they still in China? No, they、uh, they actually moved here about three years ago. So what what city are you in, California? Are you, are you in the city? The whatever. I'm in、uh, Sacramento,、oh. the capital city. Okay.、Yeah. Is that is that where the Snell Foundation is? Yes. Yeah. Yes.、Um, the foundation always had a lab there for many years because it was founded in California. Yes. And it was. And,、um, it was Founded、and、New York Lab was really a later、uh, establishment because、uh, some of the board members were on the East Coast in that area. Oh, I see. You know, until I went down this road, I have to admit I did not understand it was even a foundation. I didn't know. I didn't understand really what it was. But、uh, well, let me give you a little brief intro there. Okay, great. Basically,、Perfect. Pete Williams now. Died of a fatal head injury、uh, in an auto racing event. And the、uh, racing event was uh, in uh, Arcata, California. The event was organized by Sports Car Club of America, which is still、uh, one of the largest、uh, mm-hmm. grassroots、uh, auto racing club in this country.、Um, 2015, I think it was the year.、Uh, SCCA.、Uh, Inducted Dr. George Snively into the Hall of Fame, and George Snively was the founder uh, of uh, Snell Foundation. He was on the board of、uh, Sports Car Club of America at the time, and the track doctor himself. He's a doctor、uh, in the、uh, County Hospital of Sacramento. But his undergraduate is in engineering, so he's a very handy guy. You know, in those days,、uh, all the racers、uh, are fiddlers. You know, they—they, they, I mean, they fiddle their own cars. They're tinkering men and then they're handy men. They didn't have an entourage of a service crew, you know, around them.、Um, so when he died that year, he was actually the racer of the year. So there was a lot of、uh, emotion and passion and sadness、uh, about this、uh, accident. His, he was driving a Austin Healey, a、um, kind of topless car, and、uh, there was no robot. His car、uh, during the race turned upside down, and his head had an injury. We still have this helmet. Oh, he had、wow. on、wow. in our conference room, and if you look in the Snell website or you, if you come to the Snell office, you could see this helmet that he had, which was very popular at the time, was just really a fashion statement. It had it looked like a、uh, what we now see as a、uh, riding.、Uh, Like horseback riding helmet type with a bill、sure. in the front. Yeah, yeah.、Uh, it's、um, bounded. The outside was leather, looked pretty and stylish, but <laughs> the helmet under the leather was just cardboard paper. And then, after, you know, under that shell of cardboard paper is a suspension system that you know makes the airflow. Uh, uh, Better and、uh, keep them cooler, and、uh, the strap system, you know, extend from the suspension system. That's all. So no wonder he didn't get any protection from this hel- paper cardboard helmet. And Dr. George Snively、um, realized that if he had a better helmet on, he might have survived this crash. Hmm. So when there was a Snell Memorial Fund to raise, because he was newly married and、uh, you know had a young widower, 
the widow did, didn't have any kids, you know. So they talked about what to do with the Snell Memorial Fund. And the FCCA initially was discussing um, holding uh, like a perpetual race in his name mm-hmm. every other year or something mm-hmm. like that. And uh, Dr. George Snively was against it. And he thought, because he was already looking into how uh, helmets were not protecting uh, racers' heads uh, at the time, and published a couple of articles on it. So he proposed that this should be a seed money to establish a nonprofit organization uh, with a mission to... Uh, establish a performance of standards for a helmet and uh, do some research that uh, could benefit the racing community. And that's how it was set up. So initial um, board members were mostly SCCA board members and uh, racers. Huh. So at the time, uh, there was no helmet standards of any kind uh, in this country. So George Snively uh, really had to start from scratch. Uh, the, uh, internationally, um, the, the British had a helmet standard. Um, so he borrowed some of the stuff that the British already knew, and he did some study himself. He, as a doctor, he had cadavers, you know. There were unclaimed bodies and stuff. I heard stories. And he uh, figured out, like, um, at what kind of impact level would result in uh, skull fracture and soft brain tissue damage. But the, the real uh, challenging part was because um, nobody really had a good um idea how to test and uh, evaluate these helmets. Basically, you have to figure out, so how are you going to evaluate? What kind of scientific uh, uh, validity are these tests? You know, do you measure this? Do you measure that? How do you measure it? Is the way you measure it reliable, repeatable in a scientific way, you know? So basically, he had to do a lot of garage work to figure out what are the instrumentations that are designed for other things, but, you know, he can wire them together and make use of them so that he can really uh, examine, evaluate by uh, testing these uh, helmets that were in the market then. So I have posted a few pictures from the old days, um, the old Snell uh, first, you know, instrumentation lab that was actually set up with another uh, professor at the UC Davis uh, University, Dr. Chichester. That was the oldest lab picture I had, probably taken somewhere uh, after the foundation was set up. So the foundation was set up a year after uh, Pete Williams now died. So the foundation is now 61 years old. Yeah, 19... It was set up in 1957. Yeah, 1957, yeah. And so when did they actually... When was the first standards or the first official test? 1959, two years later. I think that's pretty quick. It seems quick. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he basically uh, took him two years to figure out uh, what is the most uh, reliable, uh, meaningful way of measuring the impact uh, that transmitted to a dummy. Basically, they started out with a uh, swing away uh, test method. They put a helmeted dummy on a T-shaped uh, uh, a bar, you know, where one of the bottom T got the helmet on, the, the straight bar was hooked onto this uh, rivet, kind of a ro- rotational device. So when they have this um, helmet popped uh, horizontally, 
there's a kind of a shooting uh, kind of cannonball coming down the chute, hitting the helmet. And there, the sensor from inside the dummy pick uh, up the impact uh, that the helmet uh, did not manage. Hmm. So as the helmet got hit, it swings away. So they didn't have to really now have the test rig that we have today. Hmm. Interesting. And, yeah, I have a picture of that in the, uh, in the lab and um, actually blown up on the wall. <laughs> and I think I put it, that one on the website as well. Yeah, I'm looking at it. It's at the, about a few years. Yeah, a few years later, I think as early as the '52 ish, I had I found another picture and Doctor George Snively standing by a wired uh, impact stand with a rack of instrumentation. And one of the instruments I actually accidentally found last year. Oh, really? H- yeah, it's an HP oscilloscope, which is, it takes a picture <laughs> of the, um, the trace of the impact uh, it creates. And uh, it's really <laughs> interesting how he uh, captured the, the impact the trace to be a part of the test report. And I look at the serial number on this HP uh, device. This must be one of the earliest equipment HP produced. <laughs> wow. Wow. I know. That's cool. Yeah, so that was kind of, yeah. HP was down in, they were the first in Silicon Valley, so yeah, so it was, uh, yeah. it was kind of close. Yeah, yeah. So, what was your, um, um, so he kept, uh, Dr. George Snively kept on, uh, you know, working, studying, and improving the test, the methodology, and the equipment, the instrumentation throughout those earlier years, I can tell. And it's amazing how much energy and time he put in this because he's a full-time doctor at the hospital. Wow. <laughs> um, what was your uh, PhD in? Oh, it's in uh, uh, education. Oh, okay. All right. Well, that perfect right yeah. fits fits perfect into your uh, position there, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I found the uh, history of uh, the foundation very interesting. Uh, there were a lot of stuff in the library, you know. I because the science part of it, once you have it established, it's pretty simple Newtonian stuff and. Anybody who has a good high school physics and math could really understand uh, how things are done then and now. You know, it, it, it takes a more higher level of science to study and create new ways of testing certain things. But once it's all done, it's really easy for me to explain it. Wow. Um, how, how many uh, people are in the foundation, or full-time employees there? When I was with the foundation, we had a lot more people because uh, at the time there were three labs. There was one in Fulham uh, uh, near London and uh, one on Long Island and one in Sacramento. Um Back then, you know, because Snell was then and still is now an international kind of organization because um, the manufacturers are, you know, from all around the world and uh, the standards uh, have been used uh, in international competition. And, and um, uh, some of the, uh, although it's predominantly North America, Back then, I think it's around 20 people, uh, you know, a few people at every lab. Uh-huh. There was, was the fax machine. <laughs> and right, after sure. the bicycle helmets uh, uh, collapsed, uh, in a way, in the mid-1990s, uh, we consolidated the two U.S. labs into one that's when I moved to California. And oh. some of the people who uh, didn't want to move 
actually we couldn't support that many staff anyway. You know, moved to, uh, only a, a three, mm-hmm. four, four of us moved away from the Long Island lab to a New York lab. Oh, okay. So over the years, we slowly to kind of reduce the size in terms of personnel. Right now, we have nine people okay. working uh, and five men, uh, board members. And how, how often are you traveling? Are you are you are you? I travel almost every month. Uh, there's a presentation to do. Uh, like I'm here, this is the uh, motorcycle industry show, the AM Expo. Uh-huh. Are you aware of that? Uh, no, I'm not. Um, it's uh, American in- International Motorcycle Expo, I think is what's called. Helmet is only one part of this uh, show, uh, mostly, you know, bikes or anything has anything to do with bikes, you know. So the foundation, the, the Motorcycle Safety Foundation, which is a, a non-profit that's been uh, the leader in uh, motorcycle riding education, they kind of standardized the curriculum and teaching materials and training of the motorcycle instruction schools, coaches, you know. They set up a, a, a kind of a coach recruiting and education certification process. And so they had a seminar here, and they invited me to uh, do the uh, helmet-related uh, subject uh, seminar. What all helmets does the foundation test? I know, obviously, motorcycle and car helmets. Do they t- test all other kind of helmets? Yes, uh, the uh, currently active standards are uh, auto racing. Um, as you know, the uh, Formula One um, groups and uh, uh, NASCAR, Indy 500, all these events, you know, accept the snail certified helmets. Uh, a lot of the local clubs have their uh, and races have their own rules. And snail standard uh, sometimes is the only helmet that's allowed mm-hmm. uh, for these uh, activities. And uh, they also, uh, most common that I have seen is they require the most current standard and the immediate previous one is uh, allowed as well. So right, like right now, so for auto racing, SA 2015 is the current one. And the immediate previous one, 2010, is also allowed in uh, at, uh, some club and uh, racing events. How often? That, that's a great question for me. Is what? How often are the standards changed? Are they changed every ten years, or excuse me, every five years? Yes, uh, it changes every five years. So the uh, draft for the standard 2020 is uh, in the works, and. Um, I think the motorcycle 2020 draft is very close to be finalized because um, the manufacturers, especially motorcycle helmets, uh, there are so many of them. They all have to recertify. Then, you know, everybody, uh, when they are ready, they want to be the first in line, right? So we have a whole year for the certification. So... Pretty much starting from the end of this year till October next year, anybody who has the helmet already or having new prototypes ready can submit them for certification. And uh, nobody can sell these helmets until after October. So that way, everybody get a fair chance. Oh, October to, uh, of 2020? Uh, no, not Otherwise, everybody wants to be the first, and we would make some people upset. Right. And, and October of 2020 or 2019? Yeah. Yep. Now, October 2019 is when the, the motorcycle standard is going to be effective. That's M2020. Okay. The SA for auto racing is going to be uh, 2020, October. So we lack those two standards, so we don't have all the work in one year. 
So each of the, yeah, each of the helmets, so SA stands for Special Application Helmets, M would be Motorcycle. Yeah, the uh, SA is the designation for auto racing. Auto racing, yeah. And then there's, you also do karting helmets. Um, Yes, karting is basically the same as SA, except it doesn't have the flame resistance requirement. Right. So a karting helmet is the same as a motorcycle. That's a question we often ask. The same as a motorcycle or karting helmet's the same uh, as an auto racing helmet, except right. you don't set them on fire to test them, I guess. Yes. Right? <laughs> yes. um, and then for auto racing, they, you know, the trim off the helmet, you know, trim around to the facial port and the, on the bottom, the paint on the outside, the straps, the face shield all gets uh, tortured by uh, a flame <laughs> force, actually. And, and they all have specified time to uh, go extinct. Uh, you know, it can't keep burning. And uh, the face shield, I think, you know, has very scary look. You get this torch right in your face. And it cannot burn through for 45 seconds, I think. Oh, wow. You have to look at the, yeah, it basically gives the racer themselves or the rescue crew to get to them. How long does it take to, so you get a new helmet in, whether it's a a bicycle helmet or a horse helmet or carding helmet or car helmet or motorcycle, how long does it take logistically and physically to do the test? Is it one day process? Is it a few hours or multiple days? No, uh, one technician can really only do one set of uh, essay uh, certification in a whole day, eight-hour day. Okay. And usually, uh, because it has the most to be looked at more than any other types of helmets, you know, even the flame test itself, you got to burn the face shields, the chin strap, the trim, and the paint, you know, and everything has to be timed and documented. And um, the... Also, auto racing gets an extra impact uh, type. It's on a robot. It gets whacked oh, sure. like three times. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's not done on motorcycle helmets. Oh, sure. That makes so, sense. Yeah. And one, uh, one set of helmets, and also because auto racing helmets, you see, when you make a auto racing helmet, you have a shell and a liner, and they're all kind of unique combination configuration, right? But because the volume is so so low, like, you know, people, the, the manufacturers don't make uh, independent, different size shell and, and liner for each commercial size. So there are only two or three, at most, shells for the entire line that sells from extra small to triple X large, right? Right. And so when these helmets are made, like, just for one one dummy, all the dummy that we have have sizes. And so if the helmet is sold, say, from extra small to medium, they're all the same helmets, we actually would test on both extra small and on medium. So you need, like, extra helmets, right, for so, different dummy sizes. So and for each size, uh, each dummy, I mean, we need five helmets to begin with. So you're talking about if you get one helmet, like one unique uh, t- a prototype helmet tested, you have six to seven helmets to go through. Oh, yeah. So the manufacturer has to supply you with up to seven helmets. Yeah, they have to supply, yeah. And we always ask for one extra in case all the other actual tested samples pass, then we will keep one brand-new intact helmet in the archive as a library copy. Oh, sure. So that we yeah. know, uh, you know, 
Because once this fade is size medium and it's sold uh, all the way small and extra small, we would test uh, one extra small and five medium, for instance. So you have six, so they have to send seven helmets. Say if this all pass, then say helmet, uh, company A, model A, size, this and that is certified. Then this is the label that gets on that archive helmet and get on the shelf. And we have a computer keeping track of which helmet is stored on which shelf. Because after this helmet passed the certification, it starts to be made, you know, like a normal production. They cannot change anything except the paint job. They can put graphics on there and put a different paint, coat of paint or color of paint. And that's the only thing that can change. Mm -hmm. And then they put a certification label inside those production helmets. And on the snail label, you must have seen those. Yes, of course, yeah. Inside the helmet, it has a serial number. The serial number keeps track of how many helmets, how many units, basically. Because each helmet has a different label. Each label has a different number. So we can count how many is, has stickers went to certain manufacturer, and every quarter they report how many, which model was made. Got it. So we randomly test every one out of 2,000, roughly. Oh, so you get, you get them back after the fact to make sure they're still... Yes. Oh, okay, That's cool. That's how we keep them honest and yeah. how we know... You racers out there or drivers or riders, you are getting the same helmets that we are randomly checking on. Are the manufacturers pretty good? I mean, do you get it? Do they send you a helmet that doesn't pass? I mean, does that still happen or are the engineers pretty good when oh, they're designed? Oh, it happens. Yes, it does. Uh, it, especially with uh, manufacturers that uh, does not have good labs themselves. You know, what they do, it, it's really not high-tech science to build helmets that would pass the snail test. Because all you have to do is to just strengthen the shell and uh, beef up, you know, give a little bit extra foam. Uh -huh. It will pass. But the challenge for the manufacturer is to really figure out how to get the minimum shell and minimum uh, foam so that the helmet is lighter and not bulkier and still pass consistently. Sure. Because then you have, like, in the real world, Monday helmet is a little different from Friday's helmet because Joe or Michael is on the job, right? Right. Or whatever. Yeah. You know, things fluctuate. So, so for a good manufacturer, it's really how close are you able to cut close to your margin of error and not being picked up by snow in the random sample testing gotcha. uh, yeah. cycle. Do you get um, the helmets come back to you after accidents or, or crashes and wrecks? Do you look at the helmets sometimes, after that? Sometimes we do, but not very uh, much because Nobody really knows exactly what happens in the specific accidents, like, you know, what they impacted and how fast it was try, uh, uh, moving and at what angle. But we do get some. Hmm. Interesting. And, uh, and especially these are volunteers, you know. Uh, we don't really have ongoing, like, research to collect these uh, uh, and uh, description of the uh, uh, accident on site. But what I have done was, um, you know, these are all anecdotal incidents. Sure. And we can learn something from it. But what's more important is, uh, you know, you build up a, a size volume so you can systematically draw uh, analysis of certain uh, uh trend or certain phenomenon that's consistent. So what I have done uh, in a, as an education, um, even though I'm in education, but you know, one of the ways you educate is you, you can really give out real data to convince people uh, so they are persuaded 
So one of the ways that I did was to work with the CHP, the California Highway Patrol. Um, made them uh, do extra sheets of uh, collection of information. You know, after an, an, a crash on the road, the police come and they would uh, fill out a crash report and, and that was mandatory usually in uh -huh. every state. In California, it's done by the CHP. So what I made them, uh, the leadership to support is to have all the CHP officers had a training that you have to correctly fill out the form. And if you have any questions, uh, it, you can have uh, a call with this uh, officer in the headquarters to guide you through. And on that form is information not usually collected by the uh, traffic police. Because on the regular report, it only says helmeted or not if it's a motorcycle incident. So they'll check a box and you can have like somebody wearing those German soldier beanie hats, you know, bogus helmets, get checked as helmeted. And all these data lumped into how many people uh, crashed and how many were wearing helmets and how many died and how many injured, right? Mm -hmm. So these data are really not very good. So we had a training of the officers and uh, taught them how to look at helmets to classify them as bogus helmets, which is illegal actually in California, but a lot of people wear them anyway. And then half helmets, those are minimum DOT type of helmets. And DOT, and have, excuse me, DOT standards would be, they're not as stringent as, as the Snell standards, correct? Correct. It's a minimum national federal standard. So for a motorcycle helmet to be sold for motorcycle riding, uh, it's a man, mandatory standard to meet. So a, if you see a helmet that looks like a bucket, like a half, sure. across the you know, eyebrow, that was the minimum what uh, the Department of Transportation standard calls for. But there is another, like, uh, without chin bar, but it comes down to the back of the head. Uh, those are called three-quarters. Hmm. And then there's the full-face one uh, that has a chin bar and face shield. So I had the officers trained to identify these helmets and enter them as such. And then also, uh, if the crash victim was admitted to the hospital, there's a check mark. And uh, whether they complained about any um, head injury or head impact, so that's documented, you know, just a visual from the officer. Mm -hmm. And then I have a UC Berkeley compiled all the 8,000 cases. Uh, that the uh, police collected and cranked out all the analysis from, of course, all the officers' observations. And now we're waiting to link those uh, crash site information and the helmet description and um, to the hospital data, where in the ER they would have very detailed medical documentation whether they had concussion or any other more severe incidences and what their recovery, uh, you know, patient outcome was. So we may look at uh, a bigger pool and draw some uh, description of yeah, additional what conclusions. type of situation yeah. to the, what the uh, injury uh, grade and uh, patient recovery situation. Yeah, very cool. So th those will be much more valuable than anecdotal individual cases sent to us. Sure. A um, couple... Uh, just, any outcome would be very educational. Absolutely. Um, just a couple... Uh, uh, final questions here, and we can wrap up. And I do appreciate your time so much. You, if you drop your helmet, it's like, I'm sure you get this a lot. If you drop your helmet, is it still good? That was the old thing in the old days. Everybody said you couldn't drop a helmet. Is that still drop a helmet? You need to get a new one. No, uh, 
helmets uh, get damaged in a crash, uh, first, you know, the impact level is high. But the other thing is the head weighs, uh, you know, the largest head was like about 10 pounds. The mass of the head really is crushing the foam liner from within. So the foam is really caught in between two hard places, which is the head and whatever you're hitting. So the head inside the helmet really damaged the crushable foam liner from within. Oh, so sure. Literally yeah, that, pop, yeah. popping those bubbles that act between the, the shell and the head. So without a head inside the helmet, you drop it or impact it on something, it, at most, it's, you know, if it's not so high, it scratches the paint or, you know, if you do it repeatedly on one spot and may delaminate a little bit of the shell, that's bad. Sure. But in general, accidental, occasional fall from the tabletop or from the back of the bike, it, it should not really uh, okay. damage the home so much that needs to be replaced. And uh, the final question is the difference in prices. If I get a Snell 2015 auto racing helmet that's $250, is that the same as the, is that any better or worse than the $1,500 helmet? Except, I suppose, one might be carbon fiber and lighter and stuff like that. Is that really the only difference? They're going to protect me the same, just one might be more comfortable and, and lighter? Yeah. Well, like I say, the standard is rigorous and demanding, but every helmet is scrutinized as another. And the criteria for passing is the same. It's the, you know, mostly the impact side is the dummy, complaints or not, you know, where the line is drawn. Right. And so in that sense, you know, really, no matter what the price the helmet is sold at, they gotcha. meet exactly the same performance criteria. They are just as protective as the other. One thing, though, uh, from the user point of view, what you can do best, you know, and we couldn't do, is to really find the best fitting helmet. It has to be your size. A helmet after using like half a year is going to be not so snug. The foam is going to come down. And people, because they spend a lot of money for a new helmet, they usually want very comfortable feeling when they are buying it. And usually, if it's very comfortable, soft and squishy, um, it's probably one size too big. So the helmet needs to be very snug. So they, when they're selecting helmets, they should... Really wait and and see walking around with a helmet on the head at least three to five minutes. Understand that this helmet is very snug, but it doesn't give you a headache or any any pressure point. And that's the right helmet. Otherwise, the helmet is one size too big. Yeah, after yeah, the the soft, soft the conference pads get worn down, especially for motorcycle helmets. Are your uh, uh, audience uh, auto racers? Um, yes, the, the people that listen to the podcast are mostly auto racers, yes. Okay, yeah. Uh, the best is to look, uh, you know, whether it fits, and also uh, if they have the information available, look, see if they know uh, how many, uh, whether their head is uh, the right size and shell combination. That way they can get as close to a helmet that's made kind of for their head. Sure. That's the only thing I can say because uh, they tend to have a much wider uh, range uh, for them than the motorcycle helmets. Okay. So say somebody who is... Uh, extra small on small, they probably really don't have a choice but to most to find a medium-sized helmet added up for them. Got but it. they might be, if they're really picky and looking, they might find a, a helmet that's made for a small shell for them. 
Well, um, wrapping up here, I thank you so, so very much for, for your time and getting together and sharing this fantastic information with us. If somebody would like to get a hold of you or has additional questions, uh, how can they do that? Yeah, they just call the Snell Foundation's number. We always have a human being answer the phone because everybody who calls about helmets, you know, can be very important sure. uh, information for him, saving his life even possibly. So we, we never run people through the dials, this and that. <laughs> okay. Uh, I do want to add one more line about the DOT since you asked about that. I didn't feel like I had enough information for you. Some of the racers uh, uh, are also motorcyclists. DOT is the Department of Transportation's minimum standard. It's mandatory. That's the difference from the Snail Foundation is a voluntary standard. Manufacturers do not have to have snail certified helmets to sold to the U.S. riders. The, the standards are much tougher. Snail standards in the largest size offers 40% more impact capacity than DOT level helmets. Wow, that's and a lot. And the smallest size is 80% different. So in, in a, if somebody's head is small, they they are wearing a snail certified helmet. It's almost like it works almost as two helmets on the head. That's oh, how much yeah. difference there is. The snail update the standard every five years. The DOT standard, the impact level remained the same from the time it was issued in 1974. The wow. other thing is standards are just documents to uh, guide. Uh, the designers to how the helmets are going to be evaluated. But DOT does not evaluate helmets. DOT standard is voluntary. Uh, the, the standard itself, certification, is self-certifying. So there is not a single lab since 1974 since the DOT standard came out. The standard is basically given to the manufacturers, anybody who get into the business of making helmets, they should understand their own lab should test and make sure it meets these federal guidelines. It's just like airbags. We have so many cars, millions of them called back because the airbag standard is out there, but only the car manufacturers and the airbag manufacturers test them. Nobody sent any airbags or helmets to the DOT. Wow. It's an honor system. I didn't know that. So, wow, interesting. Yeah, <clears throat> that's a very important difference. Snail standard is much more rigorous and uh, stringent and demanding. It's much higher than the government minimum standard, but we are also testing the helmets to certify it in the first place before they are qualified to have the snail name. And after the helmets certify, we still conduct a random sample testing to check on the compliance that the future production helmets actually do meet the snail standard. The DOT government standard is just a document for manufacturers. DOT itself does not do certification at all. So if anybody, for whatever reason, because, you know, there are a lot more DOT helmets out there, if you wear those helmets, you should really understand what you are opt out here. Yeah, and I had no idea. If you yeah. want to do that, you know, make sure your helmet is made by a reputable company because they are most likely to really make helmets that do meet DOT standards. Got it. Again, thank you so much. I, I had no idea. I, I mean, I learned an amazing amount today. Uh, your, your time, you've been so kind with your time. And uh, um, enjoy the show out there in Las Vegas. Uh, I think it, I wish I was out there enjoying the motorcycle show. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe I'll go out to one of those auto racing shows uh, and meet some racers uh, in the future. <laughs> they usually have one in Indianapolis every year. Yeah, yeah, that would that'd be fantastic. Yeah, I'm sure because we're gonna, you know, uh, my club's gonna learn an awful lot about helmets. That's for sure. That we've we sat around and we've asked questions, but no one had the answers. Well, you had all the answers for us. 
thank you again so much. Yeah, I re- what, really appreciate it. Thank you, John, for having me. And everybody out there, enjoy what you do. Just do it safely. <laughs> and if you want to watch what Snail Lab does to helmets, I don't have one specific for auto racing, but on YouTube, there is a Snail channel. You look under YouTube Snail Memorial Foundation in the Snail channel. There is a 10-minute video of auto, I mean, uh, motorcycle helmet testing procedures. And that's the same done to auto racing helmet, uh, except that there is no uh, flame testing footage there. Got it. But you get an idea how the standard works and how the lab does its work. Okay. Great. Thank you, Hong, so very much. Uh, and uh, I uh, if I have any more questions, we'll get we'll reach out to you, and I'm sure we'll get great answers. Great. Thank you for having me. And check out our Facebook. We do post some information out there occasionally. All right. Yeah, I'll put all that stuff in our in our uh, link when we send it all out, so everybody can just click on it. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye bye. Appreciate the opportunity. Bye bye. You've been listening to Autobahn Country Club Podcast, where your host, club member John Graybill, opens the doors to America's premier auto sports club. Join us next time for Autobahn Country Club Podcast.